Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. Amy, what's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl? You knew this question was coming. I did. I did. I, I actually had two. Go for it. Go for two. All right. Um, I think it was really scholastic. My mom was and my dad were both avid readers, firm believers in uh, spending time at the library and bringing books home. So I spent so much time reading. And it's not a surprise to me now that the core of my job at its essence is being a storyteller because I was so immersed in those books. And I loved the kind of opportunities and new worlds and new ideas they allowed. Uh, and full disclosure, I still read some of those YA books today. Why not? So you don't have to tell us the whole story, but what's the second brand that you would have picked? Playmobil. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We had a lot of Playmobil toys. Very educationally oriented households, so no wonder you ended up at Columbia Business School. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Amy Jade, the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at Columbia Business School in New York City. Columbia Business School, or CBS as they call it, started in 1916 and today has MBA, PhD, MS, and Exec Ed programs. Nearly 2,500 students are currently enrolled, and just this year, the school moved to a stunning brand new $600 million campus in Manhattanville. We will talk about the impact of that big move on CBS's culture. Business education is a highly dynamic field right now. This is Amy's first CMO role. She has had roles of increasing responsibility in digital marketing over the past 16 years, working for Viacom CBS, The Economist, Estimize, and Goodman Media. Amy has an undergraduate degree from Michigan and an MBA from NYU Stern. This is my conversation with a seven-time marathoner, Amy J. Amy, welcome to the CMO Podcast. We are recording this show on Halloween. So my first question has to be, are you trick-or-treating tonight? I mean, I don't think there's another activity I could be doing, but yes, absolutely. So what is trick-or-treating in your neighborhood? Is it like a big celebration? Do adults participate? Do kids do it? Well, I think I'm always a big fan of uh, Halloween. So regardless of whether or not I had little ones, I think I would participate as well. But I happen to have two little ones, six and eight. Uh, so they are in the prime of the Halloween experience. Oh, and my. And what's, what are their costumes this year? One is going to be a ghoul. He's been a ghoul for several years. Each year has gotten progressively scarier. So I don't know where it'll max out, but it's uh, it's on its way. And then my daughter, I think a lot of parents can relate to this, found a costume, loved it. We brought it home, wants nothing to do with it. And so we're in the mad dash to figure out how can we be festive uh, while being comfortable. And that's, we, oh we don't know the answer yet. <laughs> so you have a Halloween crisis after this recording. Exactly. So I'm going to have to think on my feet as, as a good marketer does, right? Agile, nimble and uh, creative, I think. <laughs> we'll get into that. Now, uh, what brands are you handing out tonight at your house? Are you are you like a big Hershey bar person or Skittles or Milky Ways or a mixture of all of them? 
I would say everything. Uh, I love I love candy. So uh, whatever we can find that fit in the bowl is basically what folks are going to get. We've got some Skittles. We've got some M&Ms. Uh, I think there might be some Hershey Kisses and general chocolate goodness. Well, I went out this weekend to buy some candy and I thought, well, I'm not sure how many kids I'm getting or we're getting tonight. So I got all the candy that I love. So it's a win-win, right? We get a lot of kids. It's fun. If we don't get a lot of kids, I'll have fun. I think that's the best way to do it. Now, you're the second business school CMO we've had on the show. We had Brian Kenny actually from Harvard very early in the show, and he actually sang a song for us. Oh, gosh. So in keeping with that, Amy, do you have any special entertainment talents you want to reveal on this episode right now on Halloween 2022? Wow. Well, it's definitely not singing. So I'm glad to hear that's not a requirement. Um, well, fun fact, I was in high school, I was the state champion for impromptu, which is essentially a high school version of improv. Uh, and so I've continued to follow that passion a little bit, taking some improv classes. Uh, so I guess that would be my entertainment skill. It's definitely not singing. It's probably not dancing, but talking, talking I can do. Improv. Well, you're well set up for this podcast then. I hope so, but we'll let, uh, I guess, all the listeners be the judge. Well, in my research on you, I thought you might mention this. You're a seven-time marathoner. I am. So you're quite a runner. So tell us about that, why that's a passion of yours. Yeah. So I started it as a challenge to myself. Um, I had run a little bit in high school and middle school, but never beyond kind of three miles. And I thought, wow, that seems like an insurmountable challenge. And I think one of the things that I love is that kind of project, that kind of initiative, where it feels like it's so hard and you can break it down into kind of discrete chunks. And so I thought, I'll do it once. I just need to prove it to myself. And I got to the finish line the first time and I said, I'm never doing that again. It was a wonderful experience, but it was way too hard. And then five or six more times, I did the same thing every time. No, I can't do it. It's too hard. Uh, And then I kept coming back. I think... For me, I love being physical. I love being outdoors. And I loved having some time just to think and time and space away from, I don't want to say noise, but away from kind of everything that's so fast paced. And it provided all of those things in one. So uh, I think I'm not quite at marathon level these days, but I'll probably do a half marathon sometime in the spring uh, just to get back into it a bit. What was your first marathon? What city? It was San Diego. Uh, Oh, my. Yeah. And sadly, I had gotten injured a few weeks before. And so I thought, I don't even know if I'll make it to the finish line. Just getting to the finish line would be such a blessing. So amazing. Uh, And and thankfully, I did. But it was the hardest, both in terms of my my body physically, uh, you know, was hurting, but also mentally. And so once you kind of did that, it felt like the other ones um, you can do. And I've done New York a couple times. I did Harrisburg, San Diego, Philly. Uh, and my goal is to do something international at some point. Oh, you should do London. That's Oh, have you done? Everyone says that's wonderful. Okay. I have not done London, but I hear it's wonderful. By the way, my wife and I live in San Diego part-time. She's a San Diego native. Oh. And I know that marathon, that, that's a very challenging marathon. Yeah, they don't tell you about the end, but I think that's strategic. (laughs) So you're out there running. Or no one would do it. (laughs) You can't find any other humans and you're just thinking, man, it's it's just me. It's me and my mind. And um, that's uh, that's a challenge. But when you can overcome that, I think that's where you uh, you find the beauty in all of it. Let's switch to your career path a bit. You've been the CMO at Columbia Business School for about 16 months. And that was quite a shift in your career path. Your career path has been full of experiences in digital marketing on a variety of companies. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that shift, Amy. Was it intentional? Did you want to get into education? Did you want to get into something very different? Or was it sort of a bit of serendipity? Yeah, um, well, it was intentional and a bit of serendipity. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, as we as we lived through 2020, um, you know, with with what was happening with George Floyd and with society and healthcare and so many things coming to the forefront, um, it really made me think about what is it that I'm here to do? 
What am I working towards? How do I sort of leave this world in a better place? And so I started thinking about what was it that would be appealing in a career path to me? And I came up with something that I sort of affectionately call the three P's, which is I was looking for a role that uh, where there was passion, purpose and profit. And profit didn't necessarily have to actually be a profit. For me, it was the exchange of revenue um, because I tend to operate well in organizations where there's some financials flowing. It's it's a different Mm -hmm. sort of mentality. I wanted something that I was passionate about, that I could go home at night and sort of go to bed and wake up the next morning feeling like I want to do that. And I want to do it, you know, two times as much. Uh, And then purpose. I really wanted something where I felt like I could leave the world in a better place. And so for me, what was really, what I was so excited about was this opportunity to redefine business education, to think about the next generation of leaders. Um, You know, I think we get to real change, substantive change through a variety of mechanisms. And one of them is business. And we can't discount the role that business plays in large scale societal change. And, to think about being at kind of the ground floor and helping a new generation of leaders think differently about this, about business. That was incredible because there's certainly a place for capitalism. There's a place for business, but there's also a question that's happening now. And increasingly, especially in in younger people around, well, what is the purpose of business? Is it to deliver greater good to society? What is the intersection between business and society? What is a company's responsibility? Is it to exclusively shareholders or is it stakeholders? Does a company owe things to the community in which it operates? And if so, what? Well, you're in the middle of one of the most interesting times in business history, I think. And we should keep this conversation going about what what you're learning, uh, because I'm just uh, I'm reading as much as I can about that in in all sorts of ways. And I'm listening to a lot of podcasts about it because I think this is a time of great uh, responsibility and a kind of a crossroads a bit for business leaders. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that I think a lot about, something that CBS thinks a lot about. Um, We just introduced something called The Hub, which is essentially our our think tank. And it brings together faculty members. It brings together individuals from within the larger Columbia University and even outside of it across disciplines, functions and organizations to think about problems on a large scale. And our first topic for the next two years is actually business and society. And we chose that as the first one, because, as you said, we are just at a moment where it is so critical and it takes many different people Uh, And it takes a ton of research and it takes a lot of voices and a lot of stakeholders working together to achieve change. And so um, and it is ongoing. Right. There's a lot of work to do. So it's definitely timely. And Jim, we'd love to we'd love to have you. So please come to the hub and hopefully we can uh, we can do something together. No, let's do that for sure. So let's step back to that little framework you have on passion, purpose and profit. Tell us a bit more about how you arrived at that. And you sound like you used it very explicitly in the shift in your career. So is it something you've used for many years or is it at this point in life? Is it something that you kind of said, I want to be more intentional about my next moves in my career and I want to really think about what I value? Yeah, I think it was um, it was always there. It was always an undercurrent, but I might not Mm -hmm. have been able to articulate it until I was really kind of faced with the choice in the external environment. Um, was what it was in 2020, but I have found meaning in, in and meaning is different for different people. I, I think meaning can be bringing joy. I think it can be helping everybody live a happier life. I think it can be helping people people live a healthier life. Um, but I have found meaning in, in, in the work that I've done in a variety of ways. At The Economist, it was really about the need for information. And I think information is so critical in society. It's so critical to people's well-being and understanding what's happening in the world around you is, is imperative, really. And so for me at The Economist, it was about providing very thoughtful, comprehensive information written in a way that was accessible. So one thing about The Economist that people might not know is it's really complex in terms of the ideas, but it's actually written to be digestible at a high school level um, because it's that important that we can talk about these really complex things. When I was at Viacom CBS, it was about representation. 
so I'm a huge believer that we are influenced so much by the media around us, what we consume, what we see or don't see. Um, there's a lot of research that says that we are we are sometimes aware of the perceptions that it instills in us. And sometimes we are unaware. It is subconscious. And so I loved Viacom, what was then Viacom and ultimately Viacom CBS's portfolio of brands where they really were expansive and they were talking to so many different audiences and they had a true commitment both on screen and off screen uh, to make sure that various groups were represented. So I think I had been finding this in every role that I did and then it just became sort of clear in my mind one day it just felt like, oh, no. It was sort of illuminated, um, but I think I had been moving towards that in every role that I had. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Before your role at Columbia... At CBS Columbia Business School, you were at Viacom CBS in a, very, in a senior role, VP of Digital and Social Strategy at this very large entertainment company. Tell us a bit about your role at Columbia Business School versus that one. How are they similar and how are they different? Well, it's funny. Um, so one of the things that I didn't realize until maybe even two few days ago when I started thinking about our conversation was that actually I tend to work in environments as different as they seem. They have two commonalities. One, I enter into them at a time of great inflection. Uh, it's either an industry being disrupted or a being the disruptor of the industry, but also essentially where people are sort of the product, right? In, in The Economist, it was the journalists who were creating the IP that people would uh, consume. Mm -hmm. At Viacom CBS, it was creatives making shows or talent uh, participating in those shows, making the IP that people would consume. And Columbia Business School, actually, it's very similar. It's our faculty producing the insights and developing the curriculum that is the product that, you know, students are consuming. So um, as much as they seem different on the surface, in some ways, they are very similar. Uh, whereas my role, though, at Viacom CBS was really focused around social and digital. My remit at Columbia Business School is a bit broader. So my team right now is uh, subdivided into four functions, strategic communications, um, content creation and development, marketing and digital tools and operations. And, you know, that actually is a relatively new structure in academia. In academia, you often had a lot of uh, very, very talented generalists who could switch from one thing to another. But as these channels take on increasing importance, I felt like we needed a large number of specialists for the work that we were doing. Some generalists, but certainly specialists. And as such, we kind of had to split our org um, or divide it in, in that way. And so for us, the simple kind of how do I think about it is for comms, their role is about identifying the story that we should be telling and the messaging and positioning. Content creation is about bringing that story to life through a variety of mediums and channels. Marketing is about connecting the story and the content to the right audiences. And digital tools and operations provide the framework and the infrastructure to do that. Uh, and so that was a bit different than at Viacom CBS. 
Well, you shift it into a very, very different category. And, and you know, you came in as an outsider. You didn't have a lot of background right. in, in education. You're only 16 months in. Tell us about your first few months. How did you start up coming in? New category, new organization. You didn't know them. They didn't know you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you put in sort of a, you know, a structure that you think is right for the future. So tell us what you learned uh, about startup in a new organization, what worked for you and what didn't. Yeah, I'm still learning, to be clear. And I think every day something that I have done might be the right choice. And there are many days where something that I've done or thought isn't the right choice. So I think it's it's been a mix, a healthy mix of, um, you know, was this the right decision? Do I step back and make a different decision? I'd like to try as much as I can to leave my ego out at the door and let the results sort of tell me whether or not something was right. Uh, to answer your question around how the first 16 months were, you know, it's challenging. I, I have been very fortunate to work in a variety of different industries. I've worked in, you know, large multinationals, small startups. I've worked in public companies. I've worked in private companies. I've worked on the agency side. I've worked in-house. So I had a lot of experience dropping into different areas. But this was really the first time where the norms that I had been used to, even if the culture was different, the norms didn't apply. Academia is a very different world. And so it was a lot of learning, a lot of listening. I probably did a bit more talking in the beginning than I should have. And if I could do it again, I'd do more listening. Um, but I think it was largely about listening and relationship building in the beginning. It was about understanding the value proposition to our five key audiences and aligning on priorities. Um, I have heard on this podcast many times people talk about priorities. And one thing with, with Columbia Business School and when I joined is there were a lot of competing priorities, all with similar urgencies. Uh, and so it was a question of how do I work with the dean to come up with not only the narrow down that list, but also how do we stage it in a way that we can be successful and truly have impact and then it was how do we structure the team to align to the goals in this strategy? And I would say that's really where we are. I mean, 16 months in, mm -hmm. we're, we, we've seen some great successes. We've seen some failures, um, but we are trying to better our processes. We are trying to measure um, and analyze the work that we're doing to make sure that it has true impact. And we're trying to connect with our audiences in a way that is meaningful. I think one thing that I hear a lot and I see a lot is um, people are inundated. They are inundated with information. And to be able to stand out, to be able to ensure that your message is sticky, it takes a long time and it takes a lot of research. Uh, so it's an exciting time, um, but it was challenging. The four previous jobs you had before this one, you had digital in your title. And so I'd like you to talk to our listeners who have not had the rich digital and social experience you have had, but are on the path to be a CMO or a senior marketing leader in an organization. What's your advice to them if they've not had your rich experience? That's a great question. Uh, I, I think I'm going to go sort of up to 10,000 feet a bit. Uh, what, what is crucially important is that connecting with the audience that your audience is at the forefront, no matter which channel. And it's easy in digital to say, that's a new channel, everyone's talking about it. Or it's easy to say, well, the infrastructure necessary to jump into this isn't, you know, it doesn't have to be that big. And so we can try. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of testing. We absolutely should test. You should be strategic in testing. Maybe it's an 80-20 budget. Maybe you have 80% tried and true, stick to what you know, 20% is testing. But you also can't be thinking, oh, it's digital, let me try everything because it's available to me, because it's accessible. Uh, because then you sort of end up playing more with the platform or thinking more about the platform than the principle of what you're doing. And so I've sort of found that if you start with the audience first, you know who they are, what they care about, what messages will resonate. And then you find the platforms which are most likely to ensure that that message breaks through to them. That is at its core how to do digital marketing, I think. And it sounds really simplistic. And I really just keep coming back to 
if I am looking to reach this person and here's where they spend their time and this is what resonates and I know that at this point in their journey, this is what they're looking for, then I can be fairly certain that that digital channel will work. No, it's it's good advice and it's a good playbook, Amy. So thanks for sharing that. You know, it, it comes back to, this is where you started, it, it always comes back to consumer or customer or human understanding. Yep. It always It always begins with that. And then you build from there. And I think the best organizations in the world understand their customer, their consumer really, really well, what's important to them, as you said, how they spend their time, what influences them, what they enjoy, and then you build from that. And that's how you that's how you break through. That's how you're engaging and that's how you build a brand. Now let's get back to your role as CMO of one of the world's top business schools. And let's start with uh at ten thousand feet, as you said. With this interesting category you were in, you know, business education, and like so many of the categories we talk about on this show, it's in flux. And this one, I think, maybe more than most, lots of great legacy brands, lots of startups, lots of changes in people's behavior. It's a hugely competitive market. You, you honestly have dozens, if not hundreds of comp- competitors. So where do you start in a role like yours on creating vision, strategy, plans? in such a competitive market? Yeah. So we have five key audiences that we talk to. One of them is prospective students. And our goal there is to make sure that they are aware of all that Columbia Business School has to offer, that they feel like it would be the right home for them uh, if they are accepted. I think business school is a product, of course. But really, when you when you agree to go to business school, I think what you're doing is investing in a future version of yourself. And if you understand that, it changes a lot of how you talk to your audience. Um, and so we spent a, a quite a bit of time trying to make sure that that essence um, was communicated. We changed some of our creative. We made it a bit more personal. We introduced, which sounds, um, you know, a lot of marketers on here are farther ahead digitally uh, in terms of their organization. But for us, we didn't have things like drip campaigns or customized journeys for our audience. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we started really saying, well, who are you? Who would you like to be? And what are the things that we can leverage in our marketing that helps you see yourself here? And so it was a shift in terms of how we approach them. One of our other audiences is our current students, and it's really about making sure that they feel energized and invigorated and that they're getting the most out of this experience and that it aligns with what they thought. Uh, And so we're doing a lot of work within our own ecosystem, trying to ensure that they understand, you know, the benefits and services that we have, making sure they're aware of some of the awesome research and classes that we're taking Um, connecting them to senior decision makers. So a lot of that is actually more person to person. Um, And I don't think any of that has substantively changed in terms of our approach. But I think what we found is more ways to communicate with those students and also ways to communicate in in a way that they appreciate. But there's also more competition generally than ever before. Information that wasn't accessible 10, 15, 30 years ago is now easily discoverable. And so it's definitely something that we think a lot about. We have a couple of um, very specific services that we've and products that we've designed to help to ensure that we are also part of that conversation. For instance, we have a product called Alumni Edge, which we offer to all of our alumni at a nominal sum. They can come back and continue to take classes. And because as I mentioned a few minutes ago, we are living in a world where things are changing. They're changing rapidly. And the skill set that you had a year or two years ago may not be the one you need for the next two years. And so we are just seeing such an increase in demand for, well, how do I continue to upskill? How do I continue to cross skill? Uh, We have people coming to take classes like Python for MBAs. We have people coming to take classes on ESG. We have people coming to take classes on climate. Climate is a huge focus Mm -hmm. for us. Uh, And so we've thought about that. We also have a variety of executive education programs where for individuals who didn't necessarily go for a degree program at Columbia Business School, but need to continue learning. Um, And then I think we are really thoughtful about our audiences and how we make sure that in this evolving world, 
you know, we are we are giving them what they need. And it could be as simple as reassessing our messaging. We're in New York City. And when you're looking to be a business leader, physically being in New York City is really helpful because there's so many people to meet. There's so many organizations to work for. And so geography is a, a huge uh, selling point for us. But after COVID, you also saw that it can't be your only value proposition. And, and we had other parts of the value proposition. Mm-hmm. But that's just an example of where when the world around you is changing, you have to think about how you're communicating. Yeah. Well, speaking of New York and location, you did move in the last year to a new campus about 10 blocks from your old campus, $600 million facility, a park between the two buildings, uh, unbelievable architecture. You had a great firm develop it. A lot of firms and companies, you know, move locations and it's a great opportunity to sort of renew your culture, maybe reboot a bit of your culture. Could you talk a little bit about that process of moving everything in Manhattanville to this amazing facility site experience? At the core of it, we were using this moment in time to highlight not just the facilities, but where Columbia Business School was on its journey, and that this was a moment of of transformation. So the things that we wanted to make sure our internal audience understood first and foremost was, you know, we have an incredible history and legacy of providing this this world-class education. That wasn't going to change. It was the location that changed. Uh, But the location provided more opportunities for collaboration. It provided more opportunities for access um, and that it was really going to be a lifelong home for us, that it was meant to be a place where you can come and and take a class. But equally, in 10, 15 years, you can come back and you can uh, hear and attend an event. You could go to a networking event that this was one stop on a lifelong journey and our physical presence or as, as one might say, our physical plant, uh, you know, 10 blocks south didn't allow for that kind of longer term, large scale community building. We worked internally with our stakeholders to make sure everybody was on the same page as to how we spoke about it. Um, and then we we started talking to media and we created a variety of documents, I mean, similar to what to what most of us would do. And we focused a lot on our community partnerships as well. That was really important. Um, We are moving into a new neighborhood. There is so much that we can learn. There is so much opportunity to partner uh, with a lot of the businesses and the entrepreneurs already in Manhattanville. So these buildings are, the campus itself for us is nearly double the size of our previous campus. So you can imagine what opportunities um, that provides us just to connect with more people, to be able to host events, to have our uh, CBS alumni come back, to have members of the community attend events. And one of the things that is was really important to us is being green. And actually, fun fact, Columbia University's Manhattanville campus, so the larger campus, it's actually the first LEED Platinum certified higher education campus, I think, in the nation. So we've got these beautiful buildings. They allow us to just interact with more people. They're environmentally friendly. Um, and the spaces themselves are open. They were very much designed that way. So we had this really wonderful moment in time where we could use the move as an opportunity to talk more broadly uh, about those areas of focus. So it's been it's been busy, but very exciting year. Amy, you spoke about entrepreneurship as one of the kind of the pillars of the school. And in my research, I, I, I found this amazing stat that in the last 10 years, your graduates have started 726 companies. So that's like 70 a year. I think you have venture-backed so, companies, right? Yeah. What is it about the culture, the the students, the alumni, whatever, that is so generative in starting new firms? Now, I'm sure, you know, a lot of those will not work. That's not the point. But the fact that people have ideas, they get venture funding, they they develop them versus joining a more established career path, you know, which I did when I left business school. There's never a shortage of ideas, certainly. What we do is 
put in place a curriculum that helps to guide both entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs as well. That's an important area of focus for us. So innovation within a corporation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we have a curriculum that really speaks to, well, what is it that you need to know practically to go out and uh, to start a business? We also have a variety of clubs and benefits and uh services and and partnerships within Columbia University that I think help individuals take that idea from kind of conception to execution. And then I think we're in New York City. And so we are, you know, Silicon Alley, as they call it. Uh, We are in the midst of an incredible entrepreneurial ecosystem. You can work with other groups within CU. So, for example, one program we have pairs students with uh, from the business school with students from the engineering school, because so much of what has been developed by our entrepreneurs requires some sort of engineering and design. And so imagine you've got this great idea and you can simply go next door, you know, uh, partner with somebody who knows how to build it. And I think there's a potential to really keep learning and refining your idea in New York. I want to shift to a, a couple of questions about brand. We talk in the show, obviously, about brand a lot. We've hosted some of the great brands of the world. Do you think that the drivers of brand success in your category are different versus other categories or do you think they're the same? That's a great question. I think with any, and this is going a bit to product, not necessarily brand, Mm -hmm. but with any product, you're really looking for some sort of return on investment, right? It's going to help you do something faster. You're going to be smarter. It'll make you feel better. Um, You'll be healthier, whatever it is. And then you find a brand that consistently allows you to have that feeling that I've done something better for myself by connecting with this brand. Um, And I think that's at its essence, very true. It doesn't matter if it's a pair of jeans you like, if it's a package of granola bars, if it's technology or even a course. So I think trust is hugely important. Um, You look at some of the data around younger people and the level of trust in institutions in general is going down. uh, And that's a that's a difficult place to be. So For us, I think it's kind of the quote unquote return on investment. In other words, if I participate here, what will my life look like? Will it be better? But it's also, can I trust that I'm going to have a good experience? Can I trust that I'm going to get from this what I need? Now, I think the messaging that we have to do as a brand is different. It's that Columbia Business School is the right path for you to find your next step to successfully do what you'd like to do. And here's the evidence in our graduates. Omi, talk about brand differentiation a lot in the show too. Do you talk about that a lot at CBS? And is that, I mean, you have a lot of brands you compete with, Mm -hmm. right? Just in your category and not even speaking about outside your category. How do you think about that? So I'm a big fan of the thumb test. I don't know if anyone on on the show has talked about that, but actually I think somebody did, if I remember correctly. But essentially it's it's the test where you put your thumb over somebody's logo. And if you cannot tell what the brand is, then they haven't done what I believe to be um, the best job they could in differentiating themselves. So we start from that, thinking about if I were to put this side by side next to someone or something else, would it be clear that this is is CBS? We have a geographic uh, distinguishing factor. New York is very helpful Mm -hmm. in that. Um, We have certainly Stern, which is another top tier business school, and there are other you know, uh, business schools within the city. And we've started to think about how do we do things within the actual marketing material that make us stand out. But on a larger note, when I came in, people often said things like, well, in academia, we do this. Or, um, well, we don't think about brand per se. It's more about this or that. Or, well, that's just how academic marketing is. And I had a really hard time with that. And, you know, I thought a lot about it. I knew, you know, you don't want to ruffle too many feathers. Uh, but I was really struggling with that. And I finally sat down my team one day and I said, I don't want us to be the best academic marketers out there. I want us to be the best marketers representing 
academia representing Columbia Business School. And I think framing it that way changed how many different chances we took, um, how people thought about differentiating the brand. And so I think that simple switch from, we're not gonna do academic marketing, we're gonna do marketing that is good, that happens to exist in academia, that was important. And so we did things like make videos that previously people might not have done. We took research and created new ways of of putting that out into the world through things like gamification. Um, We changed our social strategy. Now, that being said, I think like many marketers here, you exist within a category and there are some category norms and some of those you can push boundaries and some of those sort of stay. I'll be candid in that academic marketing doesn't have the most flexibility uh, and it probably doesn't have the level of of creative opportunity always that that other um, that other industries have. But I think what we've done is marketed in a way that even if we were not academic, even if we were something else, we would just say to ourselves, that's really good marketing. We and that, I think, makes the difference. So at Columbia, we actually coined the term global warming. Um, it, it came about through a 1970s research paper. We had, I didn't know that. Yeah. We had the first climate school in the nation. Uh, we have placed an incredible emphasis on climate and sustainability. And I think we did that very, very early on. And now you're seeing more schools... Um, think a lot about that, but we had a very early market position. And so I think we thought about our creative as a differentiator and and how we were going to market some of the channels that we were using. We thought about how do we, how do we change kind of our, our ethos, our thinking around marketing? And then we really leaned into these pillars where we had a competitive advantage. Um, And that was really through the Dean's focus, but Focusing on those areas are where we hope Mm -hmm. that we will distinguish ourselves from our peers because we have this particular faculty member or we have this class or we've got this particular commitment. Um, We're going to COP27 in a week. uh, And I think our dean will be the only dean of a business school at COP. And so Mm -hmm. we're looking for these ways where we can stand out, where, to your point, we can differentiate ourselves. Amy, I want to move to the creative brief. And my first question is, your board at the Columbia Business School is like a global business dream team. (laughs) So what have you learned from your early interactions with them? They're incredible. Uh, I learn all the time. Every time that I'm hearing one of them speak or listening to to them in a meeting or or reading their bios, I'm just in awe. They are so passionate about the students that are there and prospective students. Mm. I mean, I could, there's so much that I could learn from them in terms of their business mindset, and I'll get into that in a moment. But I think what really struck me was how committed they are to educating a future generation of leaders. And they're doing it through things like increased funding to make sure that students can come to Columbia Business School, um, even if they didn't necessarily have the personal funds. They're very committed to DEI and thinking about that, not only in the application process, but also on site and even the alumni experience as well. I think those are really the big things that I've taken away from the board was just, again, how committed they are. Uh, And then the other thing that I would lastly just say, you know, as with any board, is you really want to make sure that with so much going on, so many wonderful things that you are crafting the story in a way that is easy to understand, that's clear and compelling, and that you're giving them a role in that. So oftentimes they want to know, how do I help? And that was also something that we that we thought about. What is what is their role? How can they give back or is it advisory or is it communicating certain initiatives that we have? So that was an important focus as well. Has there been a professor or dean in your first 16 months who has had an outsized impact on you? Yeah. Um, One particular professor, Bruce Usher, uh, who heads our Tamer Center and our climate and business practice, 
has been just an incredible advocate. He worked together with us, with the team on establishing what did the climate vision look like? He spent a lot of time with us on making sure that we could find kind of the right balance of faculty insights, but also providing and developing content that our audience wanted to know about. So that sort of concentric circle. Mm-hmm. And I think he was open to doing things differently. There were times where he would say things like, oh, uh, what are you doing? Or, you know, I, I didn't, have you thought about this? And, and we would have a really great back and forth. And ultimately there were times where I said, you know what, you're right. I hadn't considered that viewpoint. And, or he would say, you, you've got this, you know what it is. So um, he's been really helpful, I think, in, um, in allowing us to do the work we need to do to have buy-in. And then, and then what's important in all of these situations is that once you have some buy-in that you can take it and you can leverage that or use it as an example for different groups so that we could continue to do that same sort of thing with other divisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's been incredible. Amy, what's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl? You knew this question was coming. I did. I did. I, I actually had two. Uh, so I don't know if I have to pick one. But if I do, I will Go say. For it. Go for two. All right. Um, I think it was really scholastic. My mom was and my dad were both avid readers, firm believers in uh, spending time at the library and bringing books home. And so I spent so much time reading. And it's not a surprise to me now that the core of my job at its essence is being a storyteller because I was so immersed in those books and I loved the kind of opportunities and new worlds and new ideas they allowed. But I also loved just how engaged um, I was with them. And I think about that now as a marketer and as a communicator, it's my job to figure out who I'm telling the story to, what that story is, you know, how will people, how will people, um, receive it or, or gain access to that story. Uh, and specifically, I read a lot of Goosebumps. I was really into kind of the sci-fi, yeah. young adults. Uh, and full disclosure, I still read some of those YA books today. Why not? <laughs> yeah, Why not? I mean, they're just, you know. So you don't have to tell us a whole story, but what's the second brand that you would have picked? Playmobil. Oh, yeah. We had a lot of Playmobil yeah. toys at our house. Yeah. Very educationally oriented in households. So no wonder you ended up at Columbia Business School. Yeah. My mom was in education. She's a licensed clinical social worker and worked in public oh. schools. And so I think from an early, early days, it was a big thing. What do you hope business education looks like 10 years from now? I hope that it's, it's inclusive. It is critically important that we have as much representation as possible in business school, but also as business school graduates progress, you know, into the workforce, into leadership roles. So that's really important that, you know, the makeup of the class represents the makeup of the world around us. Uh, It also needs to really be about, I believe, you know, shareholder value. Um, I think capitalism has a really wonderful and important role to play. But if we're using it simply for financial benefit and not for the greater good, it, it's concerning to me about one, the longevity, but two, you know, what what are we doing with that? So I think making sure that some of the components we talked about earlier are in their DEI, leadership and management, like making sure that these areas are equally as important in a business education. Those are the two things that really make me excited to be at CBS because we are committed to those. And where I think not just that I want business to be, but I think that the, uh, business schools to be, but where I think business schools need to be, especially if they're going to continue to add value. And then making sure that you as a student, when you take that knowledge and you go out into the world, that you can make it a better place um, through the leadership that, that you provide and the business skills that you have. Now, you were on the industry side before. Now you were in academia. A lot of people listening here are hiring students coming out of schools like yours. Let's end with one piece of advice to those people out there who are looking to attract talent to their organization and let that talent perform to their highest potential. 
I'm a firm believer in two things as a leader. And so I'm going to say that I hope hiring managers will do those two things. One is create an environment of psychological safety. You just can't have high performing individuals or high performing teams if people don't come as their full and authentic selves. I firmly believe that. I've never seen a team function well if people are scared, if they're unhappy, if they feel like they're hiding a part of themselves. So to the extent that you can make that clear, to the extent that you can make sure you're finding people whose values align with your organizational values, and that when they get there, they'll feel safe and supported, I think that's huge. And we've heard that from our students. I've seen that in, in the course of, of you know, the work that I've done in leading teams and being a member of teams. And the second is, I think that we need to think about leadership as, as coaching. Uh, the environments that where we've seen people be happiest, um, personally, anecdotally, but also I think in some of the research is, is where they find value in the work that they're doing internally, where they're intrinsically motivated, where they feel like there are challenges ahead where they're being stretched, but it's not in a way that they feel they will fail. Um, but there is a sweet spot. And I think if you have a leader who sees himself as a coach, whose job it is to put the players together in the right way, to get the best out of each individual player or employee so that they can you know, they can operate in the most effective manner possible. To sum it up, what we've heard from students is culture. But for many of them, those two things are, and, and, and again, I've seen this in my personal career, those two things are, are the driving factors, sometimes over money, sometimes over geography, sometimes over company. So I think we're in this yeah. moment where after COVID and we're thinking about return to the office and the world around us has shifted. Employers that aren't thinking about that and leading with, excuse me, leading with those kinds of value propositions, I think over time we'll have a, it'll be much harder to attract the talent that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Well, Amy, I think we have to end where we began. We are now, we're, we're recording this on Halloween. It's about two and a half hours as we end this recording before trick-or-treating starts and you have to get a costume ready for your daughter. So I think Indeed I, I better let you go. <laughs> first things first, get your daughter in the costume that she loves. Thank you. I mean, we have no idea what it's going to be. So it's, uh, it's an exciting and surprising Halloween for us. Amy, thank you for this. And, and honestly, let's, let's get together uh, at CBS. I'd love to do that my next trip into New York. Thank you, Jim. This was really wonderful. And, and like I said, I've learned so much from these podcasts, from you, from your guests. So it's, it's really an honor to be here as well. That was my conversation with Amy J. Three lessons from this one for your business brand and life. And the first one is have a framework as you approach a new role in a new job. Amy talked about how a new role in a new job for her has to hit three things. Passion, purpose, and some sense of measurement. It might be profit in an organization. It might be something different in education. Second takeaway, second lesson from this one. I asked Amy, what are the lessons from her long career in digital and social media marketing? And she said something simple. Always start with your audience. Understand your consumer or your students or your customer. Understand their lives, how they seek information, how they seek entertainment and build your programs around that. Do not start with the platforms first. Start with the audience. And last lesson on this one, create an environment of psychological safety. We hear that a lot on this show. When I asked Amy what's the most important thing for the students who are going out into the working world, she said culture, psychological safety, and building a company that people want to come to and grow and bring their whole selves to work. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.